0: Good morning. Things look different from this angle. So Pastor Victoria was very brave and said, "Come preach the sermon this week." And then they said, bye. <laughs> <laughs> so you know when the cat's away, we'll see will see what happens. But uh, uh, Hans Eric and Victoria asked me to share a little bit with you. I'm um, to, to do the sermon, but in the context of that, share a little bit with you about my ministry with Varsity. I work with graduate students at Stanford University. And so just don't be surprised by that. We'll be weaving in some stories um, from campus as we go through our passage this morning. But let me read to you my text. It's from Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. You can follow along. It's on page... 1161 in your Bibles, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Um, Speak to us now, Lord Jesus, through your word. Amen. Well, this morning I want to talk about citizenship. Um, When I was reflecting on this week and thinking about what is it that we're trying to do in my ministry on campus, with grad students. I was, I was reminded by something Jared said very, very early on when we first arrived. He said, the goal of Ivy Grad, that's the name of our fellowship, the goal of Ivy Grad is to produce good citizens of the church. And this idea of citizenship is something that's quite personal to me right now, because one of, my, one of the things I'm thinking about for the 2018 is, do I apply for US citizenship? Um, Right now, I'm an Australian citizen and I'm a U.S. resident. And being a citizen of one place and a resident of another place, it has certain consequences, actually. So right now, I pay U.S. taxes, but I don't get to vote. You guys had a little revolution about that, (laughs) right, at one point? Yeah. Um, We just had the Winter Olympics. I love the Winter Olympics. And I had two countries to cheer for. You know, actually, I had three. I was born in Malaysia, and for the first time ever, Malaysia had a Winter Olympics team. But <laughs> got nothing to do with this morning. And um, and you know, it's pretty unlikely. But if ever there was a war between Australia and the United States, actually, it's very unlikely. But if it were to happen, where I sit right now, things could get kind of sticky, right? It'd, it'd be an interesting situation for me. Um, and so, hmm, do I become a U.S. citizen? Do I pledge allegiance to the country that I'm actually living in? Um, and speaking of pledges and oaths, um, Natalie's going to put up on the screen, I looked up the oath that the United States would have me take if I decided to become a citizen. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure, I don't even know what that means, all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty. And I'll support and defend the constitution and the laws of the United States of America. I'll bear arms on behalf of the United States. I'll perform non-combatant service I'll perform work of national importance. When we think about the idea of citizenship, we think about our relationship to a sovereignty. Which sovereignty will protect me? Which sovereignty can call on me to serve? To which sovereignty will I give my allegiance? And that word allegiance comes up a couple of times. In that oath. And when we look at the opening language of our passage today, and we lose it a bit actually in the English translation, Paul is talking about citizenship. So, verse 27, um, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, but actually, it's better translated, whatever happens, live as citizens worthy of the good news of Christ and the literal translation from the Greek goes something like only worthy of the gospel of Christ live out your citizenship. Paul's writing to the Philippians and to us about allegiances. He's saying yes I know your residence here but where is your citizenship? Now in Philippi Citizenship was a pretty significant issue because the city of Philippi was a little bit special. Philippi was a Roman colony founded by Caesar Augustus. And so if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were automatically given Roman citizenship. And Roman citizenship was a very highly prized thing. We know Paul was a Roman citizen, and his citizenship gave him the right to appeal to Caesar. when he was imprisoned, right? Not everybody could do that. Um, and so if you were a Philippian citizen, you, had, you automatically had a very privileged status because you also got Roman citizenship. But just because you lived in Philippi, it didn't mean that you were a citizen of Philippi. So in Philippi, and actually in Rome for that matter, there was this distinction between residents, people who lived there, and citizens. And actually, in the life of the Philippian church, there was this distinction. So in the Philippian church, not everyone would have been a citizen. So if we look at who we know was in the Philippian church, we had Lydia. So Lydia was one of the founders of the church. She, we know she was a merchant. She, she sold uh, the, purple, the famous purple cloth. She was probably pretty wealthy. We think she was a homeowner. She might have even hosted the Philippian church, right? She was probably a citizen. But we also know about the Philippian jailer, um, a servant of Rome, um, but kind of a, I don't know, a civil servant, um, overseeing a prison, maybe a citizen. And then thirdly, we also know about the slave girl who had the gift of divination. that And Paul delivered her in Acts 17 and kind of caused that riot. She was a slave, probably not a citizen. And so in using this language of citizenship here, Paul is saying, you who are the church at Philippi, you may or may not all be citizens of Rome. You may all be from different social tiers in the society, and you're all subject to different rights and obligations here. But all of you, All of you are citizens of heaven. In God's kingdom, through Christ, all of you have the same rights, the same protections, the same responsibilities. And this flows to you by God's grace through your allegiance to Christ. And so even while you're living out your residence here on earth, and this could mean This could mean for them, some of them it meant Roman citizenship, for some of them it meant slavery. As you're living out your residence here on earth, do this as citizens of heaven. Live your lives out here as people whose first allegiance is to Christ. So what does this look like? Paul starts to unfold in the rest of our text what this could look like. The opening words of our passage, whatever happens, I want to take a look at these two little words, whatever happens. Um, Because before we think about where our citizenship is, it's helpful to think about where are we resident now? What's our current situation? And so with these words, whatever happens, Paul says, what's your situation now? And with these words, he's addressing their place of residence and with these words, he's addressing some of their fear. What is it in their lives right now that's tempting them to let go of their allegiance to Christ? And kind of pushing them to hang on to the former allegiances. There's definitely a fear factor here, right? Because Paul is talking about stand firm in one spirit um, for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. Um, So what what are they frightened of? And in this case for Paul, it's literally a matter of life and death. Because Paul is writing to them from prison. And he's waiting to see whether or not he'd be released from prison. So if he's released, we're good. But if he's not released, probably the next step was execution. But there is even more to the subtext here, because Paul was a Roman citizen. So a Roman citizen and also a Christian. And all the members in that church who were Roman citizens were watching to see what Rome would do with Paul. Of course, they were concerned about Paul. They loved Paul, he loved them. We see this love throughout the whole letter, but whatever Rome did to Paul, that would set a precedent for them. Um, Would Roman citizenship be enough to give them the freedom to live as Christians? If Rome decided they execute Paul, Rome could also execute them. So it's a pretty extreme situation. So when Paul is saying to Philippi, whatever happens, it's a pretty extreme and scary situation. What's it like on campus? What's our whatever happens on campus? This is a photo with Emily and Tammy. These are two students, two Ivy grad students, and they used to be leaders in our fellowship. And I picked this photo while we're we're doing outreach, welcoming new students to campus in the fall. But I picked this photo because I wanted to show you our t-shirts. I really love our t-shirts, you know, I think they're quite clever. Can you see what's on them? Maybe it's a little hard to see. It's a cross and it's made up of symbols of all the different academic disciplines. Um, and so there's lots of math formulas that I, I don't even know what they say. There's the chemical structure of a molecule. One of our students, Justin Sue, he did organic chemistry, and that was his PhD, trying to figure out how to synthesize this molecule. So the, uh, the chemical structure ended up on the t-shirt. We always have a few physicists, so there's an atom there and some test tubes and beakers for the biologists. And then, I don't know if you can see it, but come up later and take a closer look, there's a bell curve, because the two guys who designed this T-shirt, their names are Steve Bell and Ben Bell, no relation, and they just couldn't help themselves. They just had to put a bell curve on there, but I really, I don't know, it cracks me up. I love our T-shirts, because it pretty much sums up what Ivy Grad is about. When your first year grad student, when they come in, I say to them, you know, if you haven't figured it out yet, grad school is not undergrad part two. College is about taking classes. Grad school is an apprenticeship. It's an induction into a guild. They are shaping you. Grad school is about shaping you and forming you so that you come out the other side ready to participate in the discourse of your field. It's a citizenship ceremony. and in, But in Ivy Grad, we recognize that before all these things, we're Christians. We're citizens of heaven. And by placing all these symbols in the shape of a cross, it's kind of, well, it was kind of the bells way of saying we need to figure out how these two sovereignties are supposed to relate to each other. We need to figure out where Jesus' imperatives and priorities and the, the priorities of our disciplines overlap, but also where, where they clash. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven when we're resident in the university? So these symbols are our whatever happens. And by locating them in the cross, each one of us is asking in our own way, what does it mean to live here? What does it mean to be present and contributing? What does it mean to pay our taxes here and to cheer for our team here and all the while be a faithful citizen of heaven? So if my experiment doesn't work out um, if I'm on this really frustrating committee, if my lab mate is really struggling and needs my help, even though it will take time away from my own project, um, what does it mean to be a faithful citizen of heaven there? And it's not all about our work, actually. So I've got a couple of students who are really struggling with depression, um, a lot of mental health issues on campus. Whatever happens, Remember, you're a citizen of heaven. Um, For a while there, you know, when I had my accident, Jared had to be my carer as well as keep up with his research. Whatever happens, conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven. These are our places of residence, these are our whatever happens realities. And so I want to give you just a minute now. In your bulletins, there's a card, a little blank card. I picked this up from Victoria. Um, And I want to give you a minute to just think about what's your whatever happens right now? What's your reality right now? And you've got little pencils in your rows. Just take a moment to think about that question. What's your place of residence? Is it work? Is it your neighborhood? Is it church? You know, Philippians was written to the church community. And just write down your whatever happens reality on one side of your card. Just take a minute. take these cards away with you. We'll come back to the cards before the end. This is our place of residence. This is our whatever happens. It's real. We have to live in it. And in this situation, what does a citizen of heaven look like? And in our passage, actually in the whole letter, Paul is saying the distinguishing feature of citizens of heaven is their unified allegiance to Christ. Even if this means suffering together for him. Our heavenly citizenship is a communal thing. And its fruit is seen in our church community. And so we live out our citizenship in how we relate to each other. How our attitudes and our actions um, are, are going towards each other. And our model for this, Paul says, is Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And then he says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, being in the very nature of God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So I want to focus on verse 6, and this image Paul gives us of grasping and letting go. He says, when we look at Jesus, he was in his very nature, literally in his very essence God, but he doesn't take advantage of this. And um, our translation, I, really, I was pleased when I saw this, it says he doesn't grasp after his godness. So we have this image of Jesus letting go of his own status, and he does this out of obedience to God. And it's, you know, it's kind of a compare and contrast thing here, right? Because Jesus was God, and he let that go. But we're not God. And how many times are we grabbing hold and trying, trying to be God when we're, when we're not So the next question I want to ask us this morning is, what are we grasping after? And how is that affecting how we see each other and how we treat each other? Um, So in the university, we spend a lot of time actually comparing ourselves to other people. And so Paul, he says, value others better than yourselves. And this can play out, this looking at other people can kind of play out in interesting ways on campus. Um, this next picture, this this guy is Professor Charles Lee. He's a professor at the Stanford Business School, and he's a, he's a wonderful Christian man. And this is a picture of him speaking at Harvard a couple of years ago at a Veritas Forum, and he spoke on the topic, "You are not your resume," because in a high achieving university like Harvard and Stanford is so similar in this way. Students feel like they're under incredible pressure, and their entire self-worth is measured by their achievement. It starts with grades, high school and college, and then extracurricular clubs, and then it's summer internships. And by the time you hit grad school, it expands to papers, and it just goes on and on and on. Tenure, grants, all kinds of things. And in the US, in the world you know, of top-tier universities, success is all about your resume. And for often, you know, the unconscious move that we're tempted to make is my worth is summed up in my resume. We battle with this question of identity all the time on campus. But Charles, he gets up on stage at Harvard and he declares, you are not your resume. He's a citizen of heaven. You're not your resume. And he came back and he gave us talk at Stanford and he told us about this. And he said, you know, he gave this. He gave this talk, and afterwards, a student comes up to him and says, "If I'm not my resume, then what am I?" <sighs> like we just, our my heart just broke. That's a good question. If I'm not my resume, if I'm not my achievements, what am I? And that's that's, that's life on campus. A lot of times, if all you are is your resume. Actually, all the people around you are resumes, too. It's easy to rip up resumes. Um, Or worse, you don't even see who you're stepping on as you're striving for your goal. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't look at people like that. That's one way this can play out. There's another thing that happens at Stanford, though, that's kind of the flip side of the same coin. You see this duck. At Stanford, we talk about the duck syndrome. You know, you look at a duck, and above the water, everything's cool. And under the water, those feet are paddling really, really, really fast. Um, another d- name for the duck syndrome is the imposter syndrome. Have any of you heard of this? There's a lot of my I think more of my students suffer from this than the other. They, there's a whole bunch of them that secretly think, I got into Stanford because somebody made a mistake. I actually don't really belong here. I'm not smart enough. And actually, I suffer from duck syndrome. Um, Some of you might know that I had the great privilege of studying at Oxford. I did um, theology there. And I never, in my wildest dreams, thought I would ever get to study at a place like Oxford. Um, But when I was there, I kind of felt funny about it because my first degree grades weren't good enough to get me into the more prestigious BA degree. But I had good relationships at my college, and they admitted me to the more practical ministry degree, the bachelor of theology, and so for a long time there, I was, you know, rubbing shoulders with people like Jared, who got in under their own steam, and I felt I felt kind of like like I snuck in, you know, under the wire when no one was looking. And I remember I had this really precious moment um, one evening when. A friend of mine invited me to dinner at St. Edmunds Hall. This is their picture we've got there. We called it Teddy Hall, St. Edmunds Hall. It's one of the oldest colleges at Oxford. And Teddy Hall was famous for a lot of things, but one of the things it was really famous for was its food. Amongst the undergrads, for quite a long period of time, it was famous for having the worst food at Oxford. Um, but at Oxford, we had this low table, high table thing going on in the dining hall. And if you're like a, a grad student or a faculty, you get to go to the high table. And Teddy Hall was famous at the high table for having some of the best food in Oxford. There's no class issues here at all. Um, <laughs> and my friend was a visiting scholar, and she had dining rights to the high table. And she took me one night. And it was pretty magnificent. Actually, it was the kind of thing where you had like the candelabra on the table and three different glasses for your, and you want fizzy water or still water and two kinds of wine, cheese puff palate cleansers between the courses. So I'm sitting there right, surrounded by like, visiting scholars and professors and, um, and PhD students. And I'm trying desperately hard not to eat too much. And trying to look really, really smart. I, I know. So I'm sitting there, and I'm beside our host. There was a host for this dinner, a lovely English man named Chris, who he did German literature, but very English. And as a host, it was his job to make us all feel comfortable and to make sure conversation flowed. And these guys are really good at making conversation. And so early on in the dinner, he's sitting next to me. He goes. So what are you reading? <laughs> and when they say, so what are you reading? He's asking, what's your program? What are you studying? So I said, theology. And then that feeling of shame kind of came over me. And it's only bachelors. Got in by mistake. So I said, I'm doing theology, but, but I think I kind of got in through the back door. And without missing a beat, Chris goes, Oh, my dear, we all got in through the back door. (laughs) He's an expert at conversation making. And just with that little comment, I felt so much better. All of us felt like an imposter at Oxford. It's one of those crazy places. None of us are smart enough to be there. Um, You know, somehow this imposter syndrome feels more righteous than the stepping over people. But actually... It's the same thing. You know, it's still looking at other people as people who I have to get ahead of. It's still looking at other people as things in a way. Um, And when I'm looking at people like this, I'm not thinking about their interests. I'm not there to serve them. I want to beat them. The only difference is the first way, I think I can beat them. And with the imposter syndrome, I don't think I can beat them. It's the same problem. And in Ivy Grad, we struggle with this every day. And to counter it, we spend a lot of time bringing this conversation in of, you know, you're not just your resume. You're who you are because God loves you. You're who you are because God made you. Um, What does it mean to have our security in Christ? What does it mean to grasp a hold of Jesus? How do we see each other in church? How do we talk to each other? How do we talk about each other? Who do we see? And also, who do we not see? Who are we looking over? Um, And I just have to say here, you know, when I had my fall and was all wrapped up in my braces, Jared and I felt so honored by how you all care for us. Um, you know, some of you have been here for a long, long time and we're the newbies, right? And, um, but that didn't stop you from asking how we're doing and from praying for us and for cooking for us and looking after us. And so I know for us, we just felt really honored and cared for. And so we just wanna say thank you for that. Um, yeah. But what does it mean to consider others more valuable than yourselves, better than yourselves? So Paul says, be mindful of how we look at each other. And then Paul says, look at Jesus. Our exemplar is Jesus. Jesus is the one who had it all, and he let it go. Jesus Christ, in his very nature, did not grasp after his godness. And so, what are we trying to hold on to? So, a picture of Diane. This is Diane Lee. I just spent yesterday with her at a faculty conference. She's a professor of child development at Sacramento State University, and she did her PhD at Stanford. And she was one of our leaders in the International Bible Study. And she's given me permission to share her story. Diane, like most PhD students and now professors, she's really passionate about her work. She loves her work. She thinks it's important. Um, And it is important. (laughs) She does child development. Um, But during her time in grad school, she says her story, her words, God taught her to let it go. Um, she had to go to South Korea one summer to do field work. And her family's from South Korea, and her research at the time was on Korean children who had been adopted by white American families. And so on this research stint, the whole plan was she had a grant. The whole plan was to go to South Korea. She had the whole summer. And um, she was going to uh, interview um, families and, and kids. And Because her family's from Korea, her her mom came with her for for part of the time. And so like any good grad student, she heads out, and her priority in her mind is my research. I've got to get this done. Only a limited period of time, got to get it done. And so she gets there, and she's, she's kind of charismatic in her spirituality. And so she gets there, she starts preparing, and she says she felt the Holy Spirit say to her, repair the relationship with your mom. She's like, what? I want you to work on your relationship with your mom. She's like, but Lord, there's my research. I only have six weeks. Repair the relationship with your mother. So she's like, OK. She has two weeks with her mom in Korea. And so she just spends the whole time with her. And you know. I actually don't know what their relationship is like or what the issues were, um, but her testimony, God brought some healing to their relationship. Um, But that ate up a good couple weeks of her research time. And, you know, for someone like Diane, the way I see it, it's, it's like, how do you surrender time? Time is your currency in grad school, and it's painful. And for Diane, it was like a little death. What does it mean to die to this? Um, And then as her time with her mom came to a close, she's like, "Okay, research. But then she gets this opportunity to serve at a local orphanage. And she's like, but what about my research? God's like, no, take this time in the orphanage. She's like, sure. What about my research? No, go work with the orphans. So it's another two weeks (laughs) Um, spending time working with little orphans who will never be adopted. Um, She doesn't really, to this day, doesn't know kind of the significance of that time, Um, other than it deepened her heart for justice on a personal level. Um, But it was two weeks. And but what about my research? And it got to the point where she's got two weeks left. And she came back to Stanford, and she said, I had two weeks left. And I did it. The research got done. Um, She didn't know how it got done, but it got done. Um, And her story, when she came home, was she said, God was teaching me to let go of my work. He was teaching me to let go of my ambition and my fear of not getting it done. and when I called Diane earlier this week to ask her permission to share this story, she said, I said, like, you know, it was kind of cool how God taught you to let go of your work. And she said to me, ah, he's still teaching me. Like now that I'm a professor, it's like it's worse. I've still got all these lessons, but he's still teaching me. And it's a challenge every day to let go. But it's interesting, she's making all kinds of life decisions right now. And one thing I've noticed, she holds her job really lightly. Um, She said, yeah, if God calls me out of it, that's okay. Um, And she teaches child development, adolescent development. She teaches classes on human sexuality at Sacramento State. And I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful that as she teaches on those issues, she's not grabbing hold of her position. She's She's not thinking about her next career move. She's teaching with a freedom that comes from knowing that God's got this. God's in control. What is God asking you to let go of? What little death is he leading us into? And the the, the image that comes to my mind is like, if we can let go of the trappings of our place of residence, then our hands are free to grasp a hold of Jesus. If we can let go of what's going on in this place of residence, our hands are free to grab hold of Jesus. And we find freedom in this. And so I wanna give us a second chance to reflect back to our little, little cards, flip it over to the other side. And I'm going to give us some time to listen to the Holy Spirit and to see, is there something he's inviting you to let go of? Is there something that he wants you to surrender to him? Just take a moment and then write that down on your card. Let me say a prayer over these notes. Dear Jesus, we bring to you these things we've been holding on to. And we let go of them and release them into your hands. Lord, we come to you with our hands open in faith. And we hold on to you. In your mercy, lead us to life everlasting. Amen. So when I was in Oxford, I went through a very painful season of laying things down. Um, Kind of is wrapped up in how Jared and I got together, but that's like a story for another time. Um, But it was a really painful time of waiting on God. Um, But it was also a time when God taught me how to hear his voice. And the passage that he kept bringing to me was John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. Um, And as I was praying during the season, I had this moment and I'm like, oh man, I'm a sheep. And I'm in the sheep pen. God's not letting me out. I just have to sit in the sheep pen. So for weeks, it was all this waiting and praying and crying and more waiting and more crying. Um, But then after several weeks of this, as I was praying on, I saw a face. And it was Jesus' face. I knew it was Jesus' face. And when I saw his face, actually, I surprised myself. The first thing I said to him was, oh, you look like me. And what I meant was, you look like a sheep too. And I knew where he had taken me. He had been there himself. And he's like, yeah, they don't call me the Lamb of God for nothing. (laughs) You know. Um, But when Jesus, I learned a big lesson. Because when Jesus calls us to go somewhere, when he calls us to let go, when he calls us to die these little deaths, he's only taking us where he's been before. And so I think that also means we can trust that he's gonna take us to where he's gone. And so we can trust that after the suffering, he carries us into his kingdom and to his resurrection. Because we're citizens of heaven. That's where we belong. Amen.